0: This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today's episode will be another fascinating mini episode focusing on a famous experiment in the world of psychology. And that experiment is going to be the Little Albert experiment. Now, if you've taken a Psych 101 class or any intro to psych kind of class, you may have heard about Little Albert and you may have heard that the study was super good and great and we got a lot out of it. And the truth of the matter is, is that it was a very poorly done study. There are almost no conclusions that we can draw from it. And as with all of our other examples of experiments in past episodes, highly, highly unethical. So let's jump on into it. This experiment that involved Little Albert was a experiment conducted by John B. Watson and Rosalie Rayner, which was intended to show how fear or other emotional reactions can be conditioned to unrelated stimuli, essentially building on the work of Pavlov and classical conditioning. The kind of original questions that the study was asking was, one, can an infant be conditioned to fear an animal that appears simultaneously with a loud sound? Two, would fear transfer to other animals or inanimate objects? And three, how long would the fears persist? So this is the sort of main hypotheses that Watson and Rayner were looking at when they designed this study. Watson and Rayner selected a nine-month-old infant from the John Hopkins Hospital, as they were both researchers for John Hopkins Medical School, and they called the baby Albert in the study, which was a pseudonym, not the baby's real name, and they decided that they wanted to start with an infant who was like very young to see if they could start to pair these emotional responses so when they first get to albert they give him some baseline emotional tests where they would show him a variety of objects such as a white rat a rabbit a dog cotton burning newspapers and like a santa claus mask and they did this for two months they exposed albert to these objects to show that he had no previously conditioned fear reactions at baseline. So two months of this kind of unconditioned response. And so this is to show that the stimuli that he's being exposed to, right, like a white rat does not already produce fear in the infant. But Watson and Rayner wanted to see if by pairing this stimulus with another one, they could start to uh, shape Albert into being afraid of a rat or a bunny or whatever where he didn't have that fear before so then the experiment starts in full force when albert is about 11 months old they put him on a mattress on a table in the middle of a room and they start to put the objects on the mattress with him so that he can play with them so they start with the rat put the rat on the mattress and he's just you know hanging out being a baby playing with a rat and then watson and Rayner are standing behind him with a steel bar and a hammer. And every time he touched the rat, they would hit the bar with the hammer and it would make this like super loud ringing noise. And they did this seven times over two sessions that were one week apart. Every time that Albert heard the noise, he would cry and start to show fear, which is understandable. It's like a soup. If you can imagine what that sounds like, a steel bar being hit by a hammer, that's like a super loud noise and it's right behind him in the room. After several rounds of doing this, so those seven pairings over the two sessions, uh, they then brought Albert in and showed him just the white rat again without the noise being made. And they observed that he got upset, started to cry, and tried to crawl away from the rat. And so Watson and Rayner concluded that he started to associate the rat with the loud noise, which then conditioned a fear response to the rat. So for my non-psychologist listeners, this is essentially an example of classic conditioning or classical conditioning where a involuntary response is paired with a stimulus. So the involuntary response in Albert would have been the fear reaction to the loud noise, right? So the baby startles, starts to cry. Those are involuntary responses, right? He's not going, oh, I've heard a loud sound, I shall now uh, cry and be afraid, right? Like, he's an infant, he's just having a involuntary response to being afraid. They then pair that involuntary response with a stimulus, such as the rat. So, because the noise is happening behind him, the hope is that the fear gets associated with the rat and not necessarily with the noise. So, by having the rat be in front of Albert every time he has a fear response, it's supposed to encourage the brain to pair seeing the rat with fear even though the fear originally came from the sound. This is exactly what Pavlov's experiment was where he would ring a bell every time he fed the dog and eventually and the involuntary response is that the dog salivates eventually he would just ring the bell and the dog would start to salivate because the brain has associated the bell sound with food and triggers an involuntary hunger response such as starting to salivate. After they had showed Albert the rat, they then ran through the other objects they had shown him, like the dog, the rabbit, and the Santa Claus mask. They saw that he didn't have a fear response to everything. He he had some fear responses to the stuff that had, like, white fur. So, like, the white rat and the white rabbit seemed to have fear responses, but, like, the santa claus mask it didn't have quite the same wasn't the same strength and then other stuff like a pile of cotton which although was like furry looking and white did not uh bring up a fear response so essentially the fear response in little albert did not generalize to everything they tried to condition him again using the rat the rabbit and the dog and the the sound again however the dog barked at the baby during the experiment so that confounded the experiment because he was having a fear response to the barking and not the um hammer on the steel bar they bring him back one month later at one year or 12 months and test their responses to the objects again and he still had some fear like he was afraid of the rabbit but it was a conflicting response so like he would Put his hand out to grab for the rabbit to want to play with it, but then seemed to be afraid or wanting to withdraw. So, again, the, the response wasn't like super strong and didn't seem to generalize. And that was the end of the experiment at, you know, one month or one year, 12 months. They are done with Albert. Um, there's some speculation that his mother had been an employee of the hospital and found out that they were using their hair baby for an experiment and so took the baby home. And said no more uh, i'm gonna get into that <laughs> a little bit later but that was the conclusion of the experiment now watson was very clear in his writing at the time that there was no debrief done to desensitize albert to the fear response so potentially albert would have gone through his life having these fear responses to certain like furry objects like rats or rabbits because there was never any work done to like uncondition or condition a new response to those animals. This is where it might start to border on some unethical behavior. As we've talked about in my other experiment episodes, the debrief is very important. And with an infant, your debrief isn't going to be so much as like discussing what happened. But like in this case, it might be like doing additional rounds of pairings with the rat so that it's not a fear response is paired with. It's a neutral response or even a, a positive response. So that didn't happen. Watson was not interested in that actually in his writing and concluded that the experiment was good as it was with what happened. Um, interestingly enough, kind of like a side effect of this study is that uh, when Watson presented it to a crowd of students, uh, a student named Mary Cover Jones was so inspired by the experiment that she went into psychology and wanted to work on desensitization and exposure work, and became one of the foremothers of behavior therapy. Interestingly, though, focused on the desensitizing or the reducing of responses, whereas Watson was specifically trying to instill strong negative responses. And exposure therapy is sort of like the um, foundation for treatments for things like social anxiety and trauma. So, you know, Mary Cover Jones essentially took Watson's, was inspired by Watson's work, and then set out on this path in the field of psychology that led us to where we are today, where we do use exposure for things like social anxiety, OCD, and trauma. I would probably argue that was the only positive outcome of the Little Albert study, was it inspiring Mary Cover Jones, because there is a lot of ambiguous and downright negative outcomes of the study. So one thing, though, that has like plagued the field for- since the end of the Little Albert study is who was Little Albert? Because, you know, Watson and Rainer, we used this name and never revealed who he was. And so in the 60s, in the 70s, and then again in the 90s, there were like, these big pushes to figure out who Little Albert was, in part because... There was some theories that he would still have these fear responses to animals, right? He might be living with this his whole life, and it could be important to let him know why he's having those fear responses. And there was also a theory going around that the baby who was little Albert had a neurological condition that may have interfered with the results of the study. And so some psychologists wanted to, like, prove that for good to show, like, the study is bunk because the baby would have had um, some neurological Issues that may have made his emotional responses quote unquote abnormal or not what we would expect from a fully healthy infant. So, the two theories of who L- little Albert could be are either Douglas Merritt or William Albert Barger. The people who believe that it was Douglas Merritt are the people who believe that there were neurological symptoms in the original infant. And this was found because Watson and Rayner filmed the whole thing. Like, there's still footage out there of the little Albert study you can watch if you're interested. It's like super old timey (laughs) looking footage because it's like from the 20s and 30s. Like it's not great looking, Um, but there is still footage available. And so some people were, some researchers were looking over the footage and detected that there may be a condition called hydrocephalus happening in the infant in the film, which may have accounted for, some of his fear responses, and their evidence was that in the video, the infant is uh, using his hand in an abnormal way to scoop up the objects and appeared to have difficulty seeing what was in front of him. And so based on kind of that theory and the rumor that the child's mother had worked at the hospital, that was like never confirmed by Watson and Rainer, but the rumor persisted that the child who was little Albert was the child of someone who worked at the hospital and that's how they got their hands on him kind of using those demographic clues the researchers who believe in this theory of hydrocephalus track down records of a child named Douglas Merritt who actually died at age six due to this condition and so their belief is that he was little Albert and then therefore we actually can't use any of the data out of the little Albert study because this was a child that had a very unique medical condition that had neurological symptoms that would have made his emotional responses or even ability to form emotional responses, it would have been impaired due to things like not being able to see well or having um, different ability in terms of like gross motor skills. Unfortunately, this theory has been debunked quite <laughs> resolutely. And the the evidence does not seem to stack up that the the child in the Little Albert video had a condition like hydrocephalus, and would by all observation appear to be a fairly healthy and functioning child. And so the the theory that Douglas Merritt was little Albert has been debunked. The other theory uh, about William Albert Barger, uh, who was also an infant whose mother worked at John Hopkins Hospital, who uh, may you know may have been the, the same age at the time that the little Albert experiment was going on, and he was his name was albert his middle name was albert so that's like another clue of why they may have picked albert and uh he was deceased at the time that his name was connected with the little albert experiment but the researchers who had identified him as a possible uh you know suspect (laughs) for being little albert interviewed his niece and she was like oh yeah he like just did not like dogs was always afraid of dogs for his whole life and really had no reason why, like had never had a bad experience with a dog, but just like always had this lifelong distaste for dogs and pretty much all other animals. And so those researchers use that as like potentially evidence that William Albert Barger was little Albert because he ended up with a conditioned response to animals that wasn't fear necessarily, like intense fear, but was consistent with kind of the lukewarm fear response that little Albert had after the experiment had ended and Watson and Rayner were kind of checking to see what emotional responses he had to the animals. Since this is a mini episode, you know, I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, but there are some very interesting articles out there. If you just like want to Google who was little Albert, you can kind of read about both camps um, and how they came to their conclusions. It does seem that the William Albert Barger argument is maybe a little more robust and has a little bit more evidence Um, but it's just interesting to read about if you like stuff like that kind of like histories of psychology so not space to do that in this episode but uh, definitely lots of resources out there so let's talk about why we can't conclude anything from the little albert study now from a purely like research design side the experiment was very very poorly designed some of these things being that the experiment only had one subject there was no control group, and the researchers were the ones who were directly involved in making the noises, uh, the, the fear noises. When we have only one subject in an experiment, it makes it nearly impossible to generalize those results to larger populations. At best, we could consider Little Albert an example of a case study where the researchers are looking at one person and looking at how they are affected by the environment. I don't think we could really even consider Little Albert a case study because case studies tend to go very in-depth into the person and will include a lot of history, the history of treatment, a lot of detail about the individual responses that that person had to either the treatment or the environment. And on one hand, Little Albert just didn't have much history because he was nine months old when the the study started. And on the other hand, that was not what Watson and Raynard were interested in. They were only interested in this kind of fear response stuff. And so we're not conducting the experiment as if it were a case study. It's also it's it's not an experiment. Like it's it's really not qualified as an experiment. Um, it's just kind of like a thing that they did in a lab. Um, so I think that's why we tend to call it an experiment, but it does not meet the like scientific criteria of an experiment. And one of those reasons is because there's just one subject. If they had had like 25 babies and they were doing the same thing to all the babies to see if there was a conditioned fear response, then we're getting more into this kind of like quasi experimental range where at least there's other examples to pull from. It's not entirely, the results are not entirely based on this one case, but still not the best if that we only have a group of babies who are being exposed to the fear response. So the second thing that is makes this study difficult to interpret is that there's no control group. So when we have a control group, which would be people who are not getting the intervention or not getting the kind of like experimental uh, variable, like in this case, the fear noise, the hammer on the bar, then we can't for sure say that the introduction of a new variable was able to account for the fear response, right? In stats we we call this the variance right so the amount of like change across the uh, experiment we can't assume that the amount of variance is connected to the bell or the sound because no one else went through the study so if we were to have a group of if you were to have a group of 25 babies who got the fear response and a group of 25 babies who did not who just like saw a rat then you could have a little more foundation to stand on to say like, oh, yes, the fear response was much stronger in the group of babies that had the loud sound versus the group of babies that just saw a rat. But we did not get that in the Little Albert case, so it further obfuscates the ability to like interpret the results of, of Little Albert. And then the last thing is that the researchers themselves were involved in the actual like doing of the experiment. I know that I've talked about this in the Milgram and Zimbardo episodes as well because this was such a big thing in these kind of old school experiments was like the main author on the paper was like in the experiment I mean Zimbardo's is like a very egregious example of that because he was like the warden in the Stanford prison experiment this in this case where Watson and Raynor are making the sounds themselves may be like understandable um but it also like makes it harder to trust their interpretation of the behavior that they are observing in Albert. They have a vested interest in Albert's behavior aligning with their hypothesis of making a loud noise and seeing a fear response. So it's possible that they might be overzealous in interpreting his behavior. They may bring their own bias into the room, may be more likely to do something even unintentionally when they're making the sound to further generate a fear response in the baby. So all of all of this like potential for bias just makes it really difficult to, to then stand on the results of the study because having the researchers who are very interested in a certain outcome c- can lead to confusion in the results or confusion in the variables that are even in the room. And that's why it, now we're we have more of a model of having like research assistants or teams of investigators who are working on the like actual doing of the study and may not know which group they're seeing, like if they're seeing the control group, they're seeing the placebo group, they're seeing the treatment group, like we don't want the people doing the actual experiment to be fully aware of like what we're expecting because they can bring with them the a bias to even subconsciously pull for that response from the participants. I could get in the weeds a lot more about, about this particular bias in terms of research. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, I'm happy to do a like future episode on that. But I will just say that in, in this situation with Little Albert, we only have two people involved in the study, Watson and Raynor. They're the only two people making the loud noise to get the fear response, and they're the only people interpreting the footage that they have of Little Albert. There's just so much potential to introduce bias there. So taking that all together, this exper- experiment, including only one subject, having no control group, and the researchers being heavily involved in the process means like we can get absolutely nothing out of the study, even if there was anything to get out of it. The re- The results that Watson and Rainer even report are ambiguous at best. Um, but given like all these complications in the experiment, in terms of like modern science, we we would be like, no, there's nothing to be interpreted here. These results are highly, highly unreliable. And Watson and Rayner themselves had some very interesting beliefs about behaviorism, which may also have tainted the results of the study, or even tainted the rationale behind the study. And although I generally try to be you know, professional about some of this stuff, there's some tea to be spilled here, okay? So, there's some tea to be spilled about Watson and Rayner. So, the reason why Watson even wanted to do this study was that he became very swept up in the fervor of the emerging behaviorism movement and believed that pretty much all major psychiatric disorders and de- understandings of defense mechanisms could be explained by conditioning. And again, if you're not like a psychology history nerd <laughs> like me, um, this this is important context to have is that up until this point, really, the main way of entering into psychology was through the field of psychoanalysis. And it was a lot of understanding a individual's kind of history, understanding things like defense mechanisms. Some of the main interventions used were things like free association and it made it really difficult to call psychology a science. So the behaviorism movement kind of emerged out of the backlash to psychoanalysis and was really focused on how do we get hard data to show how these kind of principles or disorders develop in human beings and kind of went to the other end of the spectrum of focusing only on the environment and consequences. And some really extreme behaviorists would say like, it doesn't even matter what the internal experiment of internal experience of a person is. All that matters is what gets paired in the environment with what consequences. So Watson gets sucked up on that. And he really firmly believed that we could just condition different responses and then people wouldn't be depressed or psychotic anymore if we could just condition them to have different responses. And if this was true, what he said, then all we would have to do is put you in a room with some different type of stimuli and condition different responses until you no longer are hallucinating. Wouldn't that be great (laughs) if that was possible? It's not, that's not how it works, but um, he, he was very firmly in this camp. So he was designing this study out of that belief of like fear, uh, particularly in infants comes out of solely conditioning, that there's no other explanation for why an infant would be afraid, there's no, no such thing as, like, instincts or, um, like, subconscious behavior. There's just conditioning. Rainer also really bought into this behaviorism, and she ended up writing a lot of stuff about mothers, because at this time we still love to blame mothers for every psychological condition. She wrote a lot about having too much, quote-unquote, tender maternal love would negatively affect not only childhood development, but also future marital satisfaction. And so believed that mothers should be very stiff and formal with their children and not give them too much physical affection, which is so funny because then in the world of attachment, uh, you know, the research was really saying like actually having this kind of warmth and and like affectionate connection between caregiver and child can predict increased marital satisfaction rather than decreased um so Raynor was really just pulling everything out of her butt because of what she believed (laughs) so the two of them had agendas in what they were wanting to get out of this research and this just goes back to my other point of like what the researchers bring to the study can bias the results and the two of them had some pretty intense beliefs about the power of behaviorism and were hell-bent on demonstrating them interestingly enough after this experiment Watson never published any other experiments. The rest of the stuff that he ended up writing was mainly, like, theoretical. Um, and part of the reason why he never published results of any more experiments was, well, one, because Little Albert one was not super successful. And I, my speculation would be he knew that if he tried to do this again, he wouldn't be able to prove his theories. But the other part is that he got asked to leave John Hopkins because it came out that Watson and Rainer were having an affair during the time that the Little Albert experiment was going on. So there's the tea girls. Watson and Rainer were having an affair. Watson was married at the time and ended up leaving his wife and when the kind of fallout from the affair came to light he was politely asked to leave academia Um, and they got married so she became Rainer Watson and she had to drop out of school to raise their children and never got to finish her degree. And that's then when she started to write about this like too much tender maternal love. So I think it is interesting that her career had to be nuked because of his choices as well. And that she was someone who wrote so much about how mothers shouldn't be so attentive or affectionate with their children and then ended up having to give up her career to be a mother. Not that there is anything Wrong with that, um, but it's just an interesting coincidence to see someone then write so bitterly about motherhood uh in a way that seems to be punishing children for being porn um in the kind of the context that Rayner was in, so all in all, little Albert teaches us absolutely nothing. It's possible that some of his fear responses were were conditioned in the short term because of loud noise. They didn't seem to be very strong and we really can't conclude anything because it was just this one baby. There were no other um, babies to compare to and definitely no control group of babies to compare to. So all in all, the Little Albert experiment um, potentially traumatized a child for no reason. Eh, I don't know. (laughs) Hopefully, um, if Little Albert was uh, William Albert Barger, he seemed to have lived a long and fulfilling life. He just didn't get to have pets so hopefully it wasn't too traumatizing um but yeah so that is the little albert experiment by watson and Raynor. uh as always i appreciate everyone listening all the way through and i will see you in the next episode Bye bye